It was a scene unlike any ever recorded in the long history of this republic. It was a scene that I pray we may never experience again. The day was November 22, 1963. Air Force One sat under heavy guard on a runway at Love Field in Dallas. Aboard the plane, Lyndon Johnson, former Vice President of the United States, stood with Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy on his left, his wife, Lady Bird, on his right, and his right hand upraised as Federal Judge Sarah T. Hughes administered the constitutional oath of office that formally confirmed him as the 36th President of the United States. Only hours before, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, in a senseless act of mindless malice, had been assassinated in the streets of Dallas. His lifeless body was now resting in a flag-draped coffin in the rear of the plane. Once the brief swearing-in ceremony was over, the new president said softly, Let's get airborne. It was 2.45 p.m., Dallas time. Even after all these years, that day comes back to me with all the terrible power of a recurring nightmare. But it was no nightmare. It was all too real. To bear personal witness to a motorcade gone berserk with fear and desperation, as a gallant young president lay mortally wounded in his open-top limousine, is to enter the cauldron of hell itself. How impossibly confusing to be standing bewildered and distraught a few feet from the new president on Air Force One as he swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. An hour before, I had been an obscure co-owner of an advertising and political consulting agency in Houston. Now, because Lyndon Johnson had suddenly chosen me to become a key member of his White House staff, I would be anonymous no more, but anointed with the special cachet that comes to anyone on whom presidential power has been visibly conferred. What brought me here to this place and time? How did all this happen? It began for me a month earlier, when I received a call from Vice President Johnson. He wasted no time on amenities. He said, The President is about to cut a deal with John Connolly, then the governor of Texas. He's going to be in Texas sometime next month. I don't think this is a good idea, not right now. The Democratic Party there is in a mess. Ralph Yarborough, the liberal senator from Texas, and Connolly hate each other. I had wanted to wait and clean that mess up, but the president wants to go, so the trip is on. He wants to get ready for the election next year. He wants to raise money in Texas, and he wants to win Texas. So do I. So I want this trip to go off without a hitch. He went on. Now I understand from Albert. Albert Thomas was the longtime congressman from Houston who ruled his House Appropriations Subcommittee on Independent Offices like a divine right monarch, that you're putting on a big dinner for him on the 21st of next month. Albert thinks it makes good sense for the president to be there. Of course, I'll be there, too. You think this will go well? I nodded and said nothing, but I knew that his question was not merely academic. Texas had always been politically situated in the middle of the road, but lately the second-largest state in the Union had been drifting to the right of center. The Democratic Party, weakened by bitter infighting between conservative and liberal Democrats, was losing ground to Republicans. The Belden Poll, highly respected in Texas, 
had revealed a drop in President Kennedy's popularity in the Lone Star State. It was the judgment of the Kennedy White House, according to LBJ, that a Texas visit would bear favorable fruit. The plan was a tour, beginning in heavily Catholic San Antonio, followed by Houston, the largest metropolitan area in the state, Fort Worth, Dallas, and finally Austin, where the trip would conclude with a huge fundraising dinner. The visit's twin objectives were to lift JFK's sagging poll numbers and to help fill his campaign coffers with badly needed funds. Governor John Connolly was then at the height of his popularity. I counted Connolly to be the most charismatic man in American public life. He was handsome, a spellbinding orator, and when necessary, a ruthless, all-sharp-elbows player in the political game. He had first come to the attention of Lyndon Johnson as a young law student. At